Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. Our Sunday service is at 1030. If you're local, come check us out. Our church website is calvary316.com. Even if you're not local, wherever you happen to be listening, I do encourage you to stay with me over the next hour as we seek to deconstruct the negative perception that the world has of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing today's relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. Over the last few months, there have been almost every week another news story about a pastor who has fallen into sin, pastoral failure. In today's episode, I want to talk about that in particular. I want to unpack uh, the path towards reconciliation, restoration, what that looks like. Before we get to the topic in particular, one of the most important aspects of our show is our desire to connect with you, the listening audience. If you have any questions about something said on this show, want to challenge an opinion you didn't like, if you even want to submit topics you'd like me to address in a future episode, literally nothing is off limits. There are a couple ways you can reach out to us. Our email address is info at outlawradio.org. We're on Facebook. Easiest way to find us is just go to the URL, type in facebook.com, the radio outlaw. And then we're on Twitter. Our handle is at radio underscore outlaw. Uh, Quick links to all of these things are available at outlawradio.org. In addition to that, you'll also find quick links uh, that help you access our podcast. Our podcast is available on both iTunes as well as Google Play. Paul Zoll has said, the world crucifies the church, the church crucifies its best, and all that's left then of the absolutely needed gospel of Christ's mercy is dust. It's a fascinating quote. I'm not sure who originally said it first, but Christians, I think, are the only pack who consume their wounded. It's a sad reality. As you know, the amazing nature of God's grace is a topic that has constant traction on our show. But today I want to talk about the one group within Christianity that's rarely afforded a second chance, and that happens to be pastors. And to do this, I've invited a friend of mine who knows this particular topic very well, my friend Tolian Chavajan. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. Thanks, Zach. Good to be back, and you almost said my last name correctly. I can't credit <laughs> for even trying. Uh, it's Chavijan. Ron Chavijan. But I've never, ever heard it mispronounced before, ever in my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You're in a class all by yourself. <laughs> well, let's let's dive into this topic that I know is is no doubt dear uh, to your heart, your perspective, really even your future. For anyone listening to the Outlaw Radio Show that didn't hear our earlier interview, we did a couple back months back, and and I don't want to like relitigate anything, but I do think for context to the topic, uh, could you just take a few minutes and just tell the audience who you are, what would have been kind of the pinnacle of your pastoral career, and then really the events that that caused you to leave the ministry, and just where you are today. Yeah, so um, I was born into a Christian home. My mom is the oldest daughter of Billy and Ruth Grant, so I grew up uh, amongst Christian royalty, um, and I'm very grateful for my upbringing and grateful for the family that God gave me. Uh, went off the deep end when I was 16 years old, dropped out of high school, got kicked out of my house, lived like the prodigal son in the far country for five or six years. Uh, the hound of heaven tracked me down and magnificently defeated me and raised me from death to life, and almost immediately I sensed a call to ministry. 
Um, I just wanted to tell the whole world about this amazingly gracious God who tracks down bad people. <clears throat> and so I went to college and went to seminary uh, during that time, got married. I had a couple kids, uh, finished seminary, went and served at a large church on the staff of a large church in Tennessee. <clears throat> and then back in 2003, uh, I uh, moved back home to South Florida. I'm from Fort Lauderdale. Uh, at the request of a group of people to plant a church. So my wife at the time and my three small kids moved back home to South Florida, started a church. Um, that church was growing, and God was doing great things in that church and doing great things through that church. And then in 2009, six years later, uh, a, well, a larger, well-known church in Fort Lauderdale, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, who had just recently lost their founding pastor, uh, asked if I would come be their pastor, and I declined a few times, and then we ended up merging the two churches uh, in March of 2009. And so uh, that sort of catapulted my ministry uh, in some expected ways and also some unexpected ways. Uh, I was writing a book a year. I was uh, traveling all over the country, speaking at conferences and uh, large events and churches and college campuses and things like that. I was leading this large church in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I was on TV every week around the world. I was on radio every day. I had launched a ministry called Liberate, which was a conference and books and website and uh, you know, pastors network and church network and all those things. And then um, in 2015, everything came off the rails. Um, my first marriage had begun to fall apart, and rather than giving it the attention it needed, it ended in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife, and because I was a public person, uh, it was a very, very public fall, um, and I lost everything that I loved overnight. My family was broken up. My marriage was broken up. Uh, job was gone, uh, credibility was gone, book deals were gone. Everything that I believed at the time made me who I was was gone overnight. And that, that sort of uh, led me into a very dark, dark period of my life. Not so much dark behaviorally, but just internally. Uh, I was undergoing a massive identity crisis. Um, you typically don't know what you depend on to make life worth living until those things are gone. And unbeknownst to me, uh, my accomplishments, my network, my job, my family, my friends, my money, uh, the financial security I had, the credibility I had publicly, all of that stuff. Uh, was what I located my identity in. And so I was 41 years old at the time. All of that stuff was gone due to my own sin and selfishness, and I had no clue who I was. And so um, to make a very long story short, God uh, took me out into the wilderness for a number of years. I got remarried um, to an amazing woman named Stacy, who was uh, from Texas, born and raised in Texas, whole families from Texas. We did not know each other before any of this happened. Um, she became a friend. We became pen pals at first and then uh, became friends. And she, 
she had been through her own uh, crash and burn seasons years before, and she knew a little bit about what that was like, and God had brought her out on the other side. She was wise, stable, grounded, humble, um, and I'm incredibly grateful that God gave her to me because she, in part, is the reason why I'm alive. I mean, I was uh, suicidal big time uh, during that season of my life, and uh, and God just gave her the, a remarkable steady hand to walk alongside of me during the darkest season of my life, and uh, we eventually moved to Texas, which was sort of, my, we lived there for a little over a year, which was kind of my spiritual, emotional, and mental detox and rehab season. <clears throat> he secluded me, God secluded me away from everything that was familiar um, and surrounded me with a couple of key people, uh, just counselors and friends, and of course my wife, who really walked me through the valley of the shadow of death over and over and over again. And it was during that time that God really deconstructed me uh, mm. and put me to death, really. I mean, he put me to death, and I don't die easily. I mean, I was kicking and screaming and scraping, and God was just persistent uh, and and tough, but he was also tender and gracious, and um, he was setting me free in ways that I didn't even know I was a slave. Um, and so, when that season came to an end, uh, I started writing again and uh, really deeply reflecting on everything I had been through, uh, how it got to that point. Uh, the specific existential ways in which God's grace met me in my darkest moments and continues to do so, um, just the way God's grace meets us in all of those places where we feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and loss and regret and shame. Um, and so I started writing about those things very openly, very honestly, very transparently, a lot of the key relationships that I had before restored and reconciled, uh, specifically with kids and close friends and extended family and things like that. Uh, it was just a real season of um, healing uh, and uh, sobriety, mental, spiritual, emotional sobriety. Um, and as I wrote about these things and put them up on uh, my website, we, my wife and I started getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from people all over the world, inside the church people, outside the church people, pastors, ex-pastors, um, people who love God but hate the church, uh, you know, people who, for whatever reason, have crashed and burned, all sorts of stories, <clears throat> and so a ministry kind of found us that we were not looking for, and we didn't know what to do uh, because we were getting bombarded. And so we did our best. My wife and I did our best to divvy up all of these uh, people. She took the women. I took the men. And we would have extensive conversations either by phone or uh, by email or whatever with people that we had never met before and helping, trying to help them anyway, walk through whatever uh, you know, crisis they were going through or whatever they were facing. And if I, if I showed you Zach, some of the emails that we got, uh, I mean, you, your jaw would just drop. I mean, it, there is a massive, massive, massive epidemic in the Christian community of people who are 
incredibly t- scared to admit or tell the truth about yeah. themselves to their Christian friends or to the church because they're just afraid they'll be rejected. And these people's lives are falling apart. I mean, in some external ways, but oftentimes in some deep internal ways. They don't feel like the the Christian community is a safe place for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break down. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know all these people personally, so some of it may just be an excuse. Uh, I don't know, but I do know, having experienced some of what they were explaining to me myself. Let me jump in with that with that thought, because you bring us to kind of a I think a good pivot point for this interview, you were, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, evangelical royalty. Um, you descended from Billy Graham, the family. So you had this very public fall. Um, you were already kind of the bad boy of the Graham tree. What was the family dynamic like during during this season of life. And let me give you kind of an example that that I thought was really fascinating. On February 21st, 2018, I don't know if you remember this, but you appeared on the Ingram Angle, Fox News, with Dr. Pat Robertson <laughs> and, and Pastor Rick Warren, and you, you appeared to talk about the life and the passing of your grandfather, Billy Graham. Um, it struck me, uh, not just the fact that that was the ultimate group of oddfellas, but did you get did you get family heat for being you know the family representative, um, especially during this particular season of life? No, in fact, there was widespread support, um, and I'm grateful for that. That the the invitation to be on the show was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, but uh, no, I didn't. And as far as how the family reacted yeah. when all of this stuff happened, because, you know, I was, of all the grandkids anyway, there's 19 grandkids, and of all the grandkids, I was the most public one. I mean, I was the most visible one. I was mm-hmm. doing the most public ministry. <clears throat> and so, obviously, my fall sent ripple effects throughout my family. And um, I felt a tremendous amount of support from my extended family. I mean, we're all spreading around the country and we all spend a whole lot of time together. It's a super big family. And, yeah. But uh, there was support. There was love. There were lots of prayers. Um, in my immediate family, and by immediate family, I mean my six siblings and my mom. My dad died in 2010. But um, my mom and my six siblings, there were some things that we had to work through. Um, I mean, there were... Uh, there were just dynamics because everybody to a certain degree is touched by the other person's life. And so everyone was affected, not just me. Um, and so there were some things that had to be worked through. And I'm very grateful now to be able to say that for the most part, uh, those things have been worked through and those relationships, although different have been restored. And, uh, you know, it's been over four years now, four and a half years now. And so, uh, time does a lot of healing, and I think over time when uh, people see that God's work in your life is real, that it's not a show, that it's not fake, that it's real, uh, they, you know, family typically knows you better than anybody else, and so they can tell whether or not the work is real or fake or put on or whatever. That's profound, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, this is, there's, there's no question in their mind that, you know, God has done a, 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 a uh, killing and resurrecting work. And that's just not, 
even a question in their minds. And so a lot of that has been restorative. Um, you know, there are, there are a, a couple of relationships and this is, this is normal. This is typical, but there are a couple of relationships that, um, you know, while cordial are probably won't be what they were before. Um, and you know, that's just the, those are just the horizontal consequences of sin. And, um, you know, even though we can embrace the fact that there is no vertical condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, that does not mean that horizontal consequences do not continue. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's some of that is just a little bit of relational strain. Some of that might be a little relational awkwardness. Um, but, you know, I, my, my whole thing has been not only have I needed to ask for forgiveness, but I have also needed to forgive because nobody really responds impeccably when a bomb goes off. I mean, you know, everybody's reacting. People say things that they wish they hadn't have said. I know I did. I said a lot of things I wish I hadn't have said after the bomb went off and did a lot of things I wish I hadn't have done right after the bomb went off. Um, and But that's true for everybody. Everybody sort of reacts in a way that is, um, not super sober minded, but sometimes they react out of shock. And some of those initial reactions are things that take years to work through in terms of relational reconciliation. And, um, so obviously it's a work in progress, but I am incredibly grateful that a lot of the relationships that I had with my family before are stronger now because of everything that happened. Let me, let me get back to the horizontal consequences, and I think that was a, a really poignant way of, of, of kind of framing what takes place in a fall. You were formally ordained in the Presbyterian Church, is that correct? Yes. When, when all of this happened, did the denomination formally strip you of your ordin- ordination, and then as a result, are you allowed to preach in an officially recognized Presbyterian church? How does that work? I'm not Presbyterian, so I'm not sure how that works, but, but, that's, but that's your upbringing. That's how you kind of, you know, that's where you came up. Um, yeah, so, it, it, you know, there are a variety of different Presbyterian denominations in the in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, and when all of this stuff happened, um, I, you know, there was a, a short process by which I uh, I wrote a letter to the Presbytery, which is kind of the regional board that oversees all of the ministers in that region, and um, and you know, confessed what I had done and all of that stuff. And they, uh, I never met with any of them. I never had a formal meeting. There was no sort of trial or anything like that. Uh, but a few weeks later, after they deliberated, they responded and uh, stripped me of my ordination, um, which, you know, they basically defrocked me, uh, which meant they took away my credentials. Uh, and they sent me a letter explaining that that's what they were doing and, uh, you know, wished me well and gave me some sort of parting words of advice. And that was that. Um, so I never, I never went through or was I even offered the opportunity to go through a formal kind of disciplinary process, restoration process or anything like that. Their, their discipline of me was 
taking away my ordination. Now that that's a permanent that's a permanent decision, or can you request at some point? And this is all going a certain direction. Sure, uh, yeah. But can you request to be reinstated at some point in the future? Like what? This is a denominational thread of Christianity. You were involved with it for so yeah. many years. You were a public face of it for many years. Can you kind of explain just? Um, is there a process that you can be reordained, or is it something that happens, they strip you of it, and now it's done? No, it's, I mean, if if I really wanted to uh, pursue being reordained in the PCA, the denomination that I was a part of, uh, I'm... I, I'm, there is a process in place for that. I don't know what that is. I've never pursued that. Um, when you know, when you're defrocked, when you're stripped of your ordination credentials in that denomination, um, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what the process is. But I, would, I, I suppose that if I wanted to be reordained in that denomination, now whether they did it or not is would be entirely up to them. But there would that's there would probably be a long process of being recredentialed, reordained. I have no idea what that process uh, is or what it would entail. Okay. Um, and I know that when they when they wrote me the letter and stripped me of my credentials, uh, it, I, I wasn't given like, uh, hey, now, if you want to be reordained, here's what you need to do, and blah 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 blah. So they didn't lay they didn't lay out a process of any type of restoration or. No, it was kind of a parting. I still have the letter. It was kind of a a parting word of be well, <laughs> um, you know, be careful, uh, and you know that was it. And so I've, I've you know over the years I've heard I've seen some narratives out there about me. Um, you know, sort of running away from church discipline. That is just the furthest thing from the truth. I was never offered a process of church discipline, formally, ever. Uh, within the Presbyterian model. Within the Presbyterian model, yeah. So my so my restoration, if you want to call it that, uh, was not a formal process instituted by the denomination that I was a part of. Once I was defrocked, their jurisdiction over me uh, they had no jurisdiction over me at that point, um, and they did not offer me any sort of process by which to be restored or a disciplinary process or anything like that. That was not offered. And I to be honest, whether that was right or wrong on their part is between them and God, but I think God in his wisdom uh, ordained it that way because at that point— uh, I was so desperate to get all of my familiar back that had they hmm. offered me a bunch of hoops to jump through to get it back, I would have done it, and I would not have done it for the right reasons. And so I, in, I think that, you know, it, in that sense, God was probably protecting me from me, and he was protecting them from me. And, um, and so I, I, I've heard a lot of other stories about guys in my former denomination who were offered disciplinary processes, restoration, uh, a restoration plan that I was not offered. And at times I've been like, well, that's just not fair. You know, let's just go through my little pity party. Well, that's not fair. They mistreated me or, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then in my more sober moments, I go, no, that was actually, uh, divinely wise by God, uh, yeah. because yeah. like I said, 
had they offered me what they typically offer people, uh, I would have I would have jumped through the hoops, but I would not have been jumping through the hoops for the right reasons. Now we've got we've got two minutes left in this first block, and and what I want to do is while you weren't given any type of a path of reconciliation, church discipline, none of that really happened in the Presbyterian Church. They just kind of dropped the hammer and said, "We wish you the best." But you do have a, a dear friend. I quoted him at the beginning of the interview. Paul Zoll, could you just for a minute and a half explain his role in your life during this period of time? Because I think that's important. Oh, man, it would take me longer than a minute and a half, but I, he's amazing. Paul was a good friend of mine. He's a retired Episcopalian priest. He's in his late 60s. He was a good friend of mine before I hit rock bottom. He became an even better friend of mine after I hit rock bottom. Paul understands the human condition in the most profound way of anybody I've ever met. So he, he expects sinners to sin. He expects fallen people to do fallen people things. He expects broken people to do broken people things. So he was never shocked by anything that was going on in my life, which is the primary reason he was able to stick with me and not fail. Um, I mean, he, he understood that things would have to get worse before they got better. He is a non-blinking friend of the highest order. He has been tough on me when I've needed someone to be tough on me. He has been tender toward me when I've needed someone to be tender toward me. He has walked with me meticulously through the valley of the shadow of death over and over and over again. That guy has seen me at my best. He has seen me at my absolute worst. Um, and he has never once blinked. He has never bailed. Uh, he has never once been shocked by the worst things that have come out of me, and he's never been overly impressed by the best things that have come out of me. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's just a remarkable friend. He's unbelievably wise. My father died in 2010, who was one of my best friends. Uh, Paul, in many ways, has slipped into that role um, and is an incredibly wise counselor, a dear friend. Both he and his wife, Mary, are real mentors and dear friends to my wife, Stacy awesome. and me. And we don't know where we would be without them. Well, we are against a hard break. We're going to continue this conversation uh, with more of the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the most important visions of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to challenge you to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on your own. The sad reality is many Christians fail to reflect Christ because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to the Outlaw Radio Show tackling tough topics you might not hear at church, it is our desire to equip, inspire and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this important process, we want you to check out blueletterbible.org. It would be an understatement to say that this website will transform the way you study the Bible. In fact, it will revolutionize it. Aside from their treasure trove of free online commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it super simple to dive into the original language behind a text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture and in the process, learn and grow, we encourage you to check out blueletterbible.org today.
Here's part two of the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Today, we have a special guest, Tullian Tervigin. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I would go so far as to say that the majority of clergy believe that it's best for a pastor who's committed adultery to stay out of the limelight and definitely away from the pulpit, especially those who have fallen into sin. While I can understand feelings of disappointment and whatnot, with the remaining time that we have together, can a pastor who's fallen ever be completely restored? What does restoration look like? What has to happen for it to occur? Is it possible? Do you think a pastor who has fallen as spectacularly as you have should ever be allowed back into the pastorate? If yes, what's the necessary considerations for this to occur? How long should a pastor wait? Uh, yes, it's possible. There's no question that it's possible. I think we'd be hard-pressed to read the Bible and conclude that it's not possible. <laughs> um, I mean, not just in explicit uh, verses, but also explicit stories um, of people who have crashed and burned, uh, and God has in some way, shape, or form restored them and given them something to say. Uh, psalm 51 is a remarkably comforting psalm for uh, fallen leaders, fallen pastors, uh, who have hit rock bottom, who have crashed and burned, who have come clean, who have admitted and owned uh, their sin, and have sought to reconcile uh, broken relationships. There's this great turn in Psalm 51 after David. Uh, comes clean and pleads with God for mercy and for forgiveness, to wash him whiter than snow, to cleanse him with hyssop. Uh, all is just this remarkable confession of sin. It's a beautiful song of confession. And then in verse 13, he essentially says, uh, if you do all of this for me, God, if you wash me, if you cleanse me, if you forgive me, if you extend your mercy and love to me because of my sin ultimately against you first, uh, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Uh, you know, open my lips and I will declare your praise and I will talk about your righteousness. And it's this beautiful picture of uh, a, a fallen leader uh, who was the king of God's people on earth, Israel, um, you know, committing this heinous crime, taking advantage of a woman under his care, um, seducing her, uh, impregnating her, having an adulterous relationship, having her husband murdered to cover up his sin, and then, of course, the prophet Nathan calling him out, and David's eyes are open to the heinousness of his sin, and he just falls on his face and comes clean before God. But there's something remarkable about that whole story and many other stories like it, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. And that is that um, when you crash and burn and you allow God to do his killing work in your life and uh, you are officially put to death um, and God, God brings you back to life. Uh, you you have something to say from places deep inside that you may not have had to say before. Uh, so, for instance, I because of what I've because of what I've experienced, 
Um, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for people who have made massive mistakes, who have hurt people, who have hurt themselves, who live with a low-grade fever of guilt and shame and regret every day of their life. Um, I just I know what that feels like. I, I you know before in my ministry I always had uh, a, a lot of sympathy for the sinner and the sufferer, <clears throat> but I couldn't feel what they felt because I had never been where they were. And so now there is a level of empathy that I have with them because I've been where they are. Now that in and of itself does not qualify a person at all to come back and say anything. And I think in terms of, um, you know, restoration of fallen leaders, fallen pastors, or whatever the case may be, it really, it really uh, is kind of a person by person. There's no black and white formula that says either yes across the board or no across the board. Um, I sadly have some friends who have experienced something similar to what I've experienced. They have crashed and burned. They have fallen in some way, shape, or form. And, um, you know, it's been years now. And uh, they've just, they've spent their entire time trying to get back to where they were. And they haven't sat still long enough for God to put them to death and resurrect them to new life. And to anybody for whom that is the case, I would say, well, they're not, they're not ready. They may never be ready. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it could, it's not a matter of time. Is it, well, does it take one year? Does it take one month? Does it take five years, 10 years? It doesn't, that's irrelevant. Um, it could take one person 10 years. It could take one, another person 10 months. Uh, some people may be restored quickly. Some may be restored never. Some may be restored in one way, shape, or form, you know, uh, five years later. It, I don't know. It's all different depending on the people and what they've gone through and what they've allowed God to do and that sort of thing. Um, Let me, can I, can I ask, can I ask a, uh, this will be a difficult question, but I think it really does get to kind of the, the root, the essence. I, th- I think your perspective would be interesting. So Coral Ridge Presbyterian. This was the church that you were serving at as the pastor when you fell into sin. And what you know, depending on how and again, I don't know the inner workings of the Presbyterian Church, how, how all that functions, but the elder board of Coral Ridge um, enacted to a large extent as representatives of the people that that are members there, they enacted church discipline in your life by relieving you of your position. Do you think, and, and then later the Presbyterian Church itself stripped you of your ordination. Do you think, uh, and again, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that you are articulating that, that there is a path towards restoration, that a pastor um, is, not, um, is not in the wilderness forever, that there is, um, that, that there's a path of grace, but what kind of a role do you think the church that enacted church discipline, the um, the denomination that enacted church discipline, do you think that they play a role, a specific role in restoration? If you were to move forward and and plant a church, whether it was Presbyterian or or non denominational or or whatnot, can you kind of unpack that idea a little? Boy, that's uh, that is a. I know that's tough. It's a tough well, question. It's not. It's not tough in the sense that it's uh, hard for me to answer because it's a touchy subject. It's tough because 
you're you're sort of diving into the deep end of uh, Presbyterian polity <laughs> and okay. uh, the the mechanics of Presbyterian governance. Um, you know, my- and I don't want to I don't want to get into the minutia of all of that. It's more of just kind of like from the larger standpoint that when okay, l- let me frame it this way: at Calvary three sixteen. Um, if we have to enact, in a formal sense, church church discipline over uh, you know a fellow, let's say, was unrepentant in regards to cheating on his wife, and we said, hey, listen, you can't do that. We take that step. We enact church discipline. The Bible seems to create a, a framework where that you know the church, First Corinthians, you know, asked them to leave. Second Corinthians, a, a mechanism to come back. That the church that enacts church discipline should play a role in the restoration of just the individual. Pastorally, that becomes difficult, and and I understand that, and it, it doesn't end up being applied to pastors. Um, that that's really kind of the angle that I'm yeah, going. Yes, I think I think I yes, I agree. I think it becomes a little stickier when you're talking about a pastor than if you're talking about simply a parishioner or a congregant. Um, you know, it's uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, I I think that. Um, Churches, in my experience, and um, also from what I have experienced through other people, as it pertains particularly to pastors, because it's sticky and because there are many more tentacles, um, it's it's much harder, I think, to restore a pastor uh, for the church where the pastor fell to be restored by that church. Oftentimes, there's been so much hurt for whatever reason, so much loss of trust, um, you know, a, a real deep sense of betrayal from every side, that the best thing to do in that case is, um, you know, or maybe not the best thing to do, but it oftentimes happens this way, that the church and the pastor, they part ways. Um, in whatever denomination or whatever form of governance, there's sort of a relational parting of ways. Mm-hmm. And another body of some sort, whether it be individual people or a formal body, comes in to help the pastor in his restoration process uh, and you know, possibly the church in their own restoration process or healing process. Um, now, I've also heard remarkable stories of pastors who have fallen in some way, shape, or form, and their own church comes alongside of them and maybe takes them out of the pulpit for six months or a year, whatever, rallies around the pastor, um, you know, uh, does whatever they need to do in terms of supporting he and his family, uh, counseling, uh, whatever sort of restoration process they may have. And then the pastor comes back and serves as their pastor again. And in almost every case where I have heard that story, and I've heard a lot of them, Mm -hmm. uh, the pastor comes back healthier, better, better, and more loved by his church. And the church says, we got a better guy back than when he left. Um, and so when and where that can happen, it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful thing. I've, I've seen that happen a lot more in some African-American churches where I have some dear friends who are uh, pastors of large African-American churches uh, where that has happened, and I've watched it happen beautifully. Um, and in every case, not one time have I heard 
when they when a church when a local church has handled their pastor that way, not one time have I ever heard the church say, "Oh, we regret it because he just he was terrible when he came back." They go, "He well, was let me... more empathetic. He was more sensitive. He was more pastoral. You know, all that stuff." I, and, and I mean, and I think I can make the argument. The result is because that's the most biblical way of handling those particular dynamics. So you've already addressed this within the the denominational structure in the sense that you were given a letter saying we wish you the best, but that there was no there was no interest articulated um, to help you along a path of restoration. I think that's a sad a sad state of affairs. Again, I'm not Presbyterian, I'm not judging don't know any of those men, but I, I think that's a bummer because that's not following through on the, the biblical, <laughs> the, the biblical understanding of how the church should, should function. But let's, let me ask, and this might, again, re- just reveal my ignorance on how these things take place, but um, has Coral Ridge ever articulated an interest in, um, not necessarily you coming back into the pulpit, but walking alongside, being part of that? I mean, again, what you said, every instance you've seen this has yielded a better result. Has that church ever ever articulated a desire to be a part of that? No, not formally. And that does not mean that relationships, interpersonal relationships that I have had with elders or staff members haven't been healed and reconciled, but in, there is, in no formal way um, has there been any sort of, you know, invitation. And that's understandable. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I, th- I think what's hard, what's, what's in my case, which is somewhat unique because I was such a public person, uh, and I'm not defending the presbytery um, who sent me the letter and just sort of washed their hands the whole thing. I'm not defending that, whether that was right or wrong, that's between them and God. But what I will say is that I have no doubt because of my because of the public nature of my ministry and, um, you know, just the public nature of my fall, I think they probably felt like there is, there was a, the world was watching. There was a ton of pressure um, to do something about this. Um, I was a bit of a lightning rod before all of this happened <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it had nothing to do with my life as much as it had to do with Your my message. message. My message. message. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think it was just kind of, you know what, it would be it would be easier and better for all parties involved to just simply part ways and just get this behind us. I, I mean, I think that was probably the feeling. Uh, in some sense, that was the feeling that I had, too. Um, it was like, I'm just, I'm kind of glad to be out of that situation, and now the real restoration process, however God designs it, can happen. There is not one, there is not simply one way to restore someone. That's just preposterous to think that way, and every denomination may have their restoration process or their disciplinary process, um, but they don't work above and beyond what God has designed for that individual. And so, uh, my restoration, my discipline, whatever, may have not been formally instituted by any ecclesiastical structure, but mm. it was instituted by God, and He knew Understood. what He was, yeah. he knew what sure. he was doing, and uh, He knew exactly how to tailor uh, my discipline and my restoration to me. Uh, you know, oftentimes when uh, churches have a particular program or a particular process, uh, it's it's 
can be a bit cookie cutter, at least in my experience. Uh, yeah. And yeah. they put everybody through the same thing, and it's not, you know, it's 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 kind of it's not as tailor made for the individual as it should be, in my opinion. And so I think we have to understand that God is the ultimate one who restores. God is the ultimate one who disciplines. God is the ultimate one who kills us and makes us alive. God does it. Now, sometimes he uses the church to do that, and it happens beautifully. And sometimes, sadly, he has to do it in spite of the church, because the church botches it. And I've heard stories across the board from all angles. And so, um, so, you know, I, I think that when someone evaluates a particular person's soul and concludes that, well, since the ecclesiastical structure did not formally do any kind of restoration, yeah, yeah. that person is no, that person is not, uh, you know, restored. And I go, well, now hold on. You're not God. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, there's some work that God has done that you may or may not be aware of. And that's God's business whether he restores someone. Two and a half minutes that we have remaining. Uh, three quick questions. One, do you ever see yourself pastoring a church again? Two, I, and I guess you've probably answered this, would it be a Presbyterian church? And three, what do you say to the naysayers who think that you shouldn't be in ministry at all? And I'll just kind of hand it over and let you just wax on it. Yes. Uh, could I see myself pastoring again? Yes. I could. I mean, that's ultimately up to God. I could. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not chomping at the bit to do it. Uh, I'm sort of taking things one day at a time and allowing God to direct me Mm -hmm. uh, through other people and those sorts of things. Uh, Two, no, it would not be a Presbyterian church if I ever pastored a church again. Now, you know, I say that now. I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I have no idea. I can't predict the future. (laughs) I don't know what God's up to. Uh, Every time I try to play chess with God, I lose. So I have no clue, um, but uh, I can't imagine that I would. Um, and then in terms of the naysayers, you know, I gosh, man, I don't know. I mean, I, I that used to bother me. Uh, it used to get me upset when I think about people who just, you know, take one season of your life and write you off forever. Um, I don't think anybody should be evaluated or judged based on their worst moments alone or their worst <laughs> in life alone. Or their best. Or, or, yeah, or your best. I mean, if you're, if you're not dead, God is not done, and, God, and life is a marathon, not a sprint, and God is doing things in our lives um, that we nor other people can really see. And so, you know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I... Um, I do, I do understand, especially people who don't know me at all, but just reading headlines and, you know, and believing some of the false narratives out there that go, oh my God, this guy's a tyrant. And, you know, I get it. Okay. I get it. And I can't worry about that. Um, I know what, you know, my wife and my kids and the people closest to me and friends and family know and what they think. And, uh, those are the voices that matter most to me. Um, but, at the same time, uh, I do think it's really important to say this before we conclude mm-hmm. that oftentimes when the qualification passages in Timothy and Titus are brought up in terms of whether someone who has fallen can become a pastor again or a church leader again or whatever, I think it's really important to point out that it is exegetically impossible, impossible to read those passages and conclude that 
any transgression of any of those qualifications at any point in someone's life disqualifies them for life. It's impossible. Right. Uh, there, those, those are not. If you if you if you fail to meet one of those qualifications or all of those qualifications at any point in your life, that does not automatically issue a lifetime ban. And so, there again, it's up to God to do the work of. Um, you know, disqualifying or qualifying. It's up to God Amen. to do the work. Amen. Of. So anyway, I, I think that's important because sometimes those it passages is. are used to say, well, you violated this, which means you're, you're, you're banned for life. And I'm like, that's an exegetically impossible argument to make. There is nothing in those passages <laughs> that would even insinuate that a violation of any of those qualifications bans you for life. Well, we, there would be there would be no pastors at that point. <laughs> right. so. and, and let me say, and let me say this too. What has concerned me more as I've watched the church over the last you know twenty years or whatever are not the people who uh, believe that they are disqualified. It's the people who think that they are qualified. That concerns me the most. <laughs> well, listen, we're 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 way out of time, and I just want to thank you for coming on and talking about a very. I know it's a touchy subject, but man, your candor and your your the grace in which you addressed it, man. Thank you so much for being on the Owl Radio Show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Listening audience, if you were unable to listen to this episode in its entirety, check out our website, outlawradio.org. You can access our podcast. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. You can listen again to this episode or all previous episodes. Again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.